0: You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Andrew Garfield getting candid in a new interview about what he calls the societal obligation to have children before the age of 40. And it has a lot of people talking, including our Trevor
1: Ault, who has the story. Good morning, Trevor. Good morning, Michael. You know, it's something a lot of people are grappling with, having children maybe later in life, maybe not at all. Andrew Garfield is no different here. We know he's had massive amounts of success, but it has not freed him from the emotions and the pressures to have kids from society and from himself, too. I am Spider-Man. This morning, the star of Spider-Man and Tick, Tick, Boom, Andrew Garfield, sharing candid thoughts about aging without yet having kids.
0: Stop the clock.
1: Telling GQ as he'll turn 40 next year, celebrating with all his old friends, quote, I always thought I would be the first to have kids and settle down. They're all shacked up and a couple of kids deep for the most part, and I'm like... And then trailing off laughing, he said, quote, it's more about accepting a different path than what was kind of expected of me from birth. Like by this time you will have done this and you will have at least one child, that kind of thing. I think I have some guilt around that and obviously it's easier for me as a man.
0: As he gets close to turning 40, it's a big issue for a lot of men. Men face pressure from their self, from their own expectations, but they also face pressure from their family and from their friends.
1: Both men and women are having children later in life. Since the 70s, the median age for women giving birth has gone from 27 to 30, and the average age of fathers has gone from 27 to 31. The median age
0: is getting higher because of different societal expectations, people
1: wanting to establish themselves. There are many examples of famous men having children after 40 and well beyond. Jay-Z and Seal both became fathers at 42. George Clooney and David Letterman did it at 56. And Steve Martin was a first-time father at 67. And there is the old adage of the biological clock that's usually referred to women. But there's some studies that suggest it could also apply at least somewhat to men, too. While men can have children into their elder years, those studies suggest that there might be a heightened health risk for the child. Andrew Garfield was asked about becoming a first-time dad in his 70s. He said, I'd rather not. Okay. <laughs> got plenty of time. <laughs> there, there you have it.
0: And there you have it. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, for episode 516 of this podcast. Today is Tuesday, December 13th, 2022. And in an act of sheer heroism and bravery, we have Andrew Garfield saying what everyone is afraid to say that... It's okay to not have children. It's all right to throw aside society's expectations that you would get married, settle down, have some kids, raise a family. It's okay to throw all that out. And you don't have to submit yourself to what previous generations typically did. You don't have to bear that in mind as you are planning your life, your early life, uh, even when you get into uh, what may, you know, with uh, life expectancy Expected to drop here uh, with this next generation. It might be, you know, your middle ages. You, you might be middle aged at 40 in comparison with, uh, you know, in, in uh, m- recent decades. It, it was expected you might live longer. It's plausible that you might live into your 90s or your, uh, you know, even one century plus uh, category of lifespan. But uh, increasingly, You know, it's looking like average lifespan is going to go down. And uh, so even if you are, even if you're 40 or 39 uh, and you're middle-aged, there's no expectation uh, that we need to place on ourselves or put on ourselves as young men. It's okay to not have any plans, uh, you know, with regards to having children. But of course, this isn't a very brave thing to say. He he might be Spider-Man in the movies. He might play Spider-Man on TV, but he uh, is, is not really saying anything that's all that extraordinary. It is pretty common for our generation and for those coming up after us to put off like Good Morning America in their November 16th, uh, you know, piece featuring him uh, talks about it's more and more common for young men and young women To put off getting married, to put off having kids until later in life. Now they go back to the 1970s and they say, well, okay, it went up from 26, 27 to 30, 31 from the 1970s to the present. But if they go back a couple of decades prior to that, they they don't want to go back that far. They don't want to go back to the 1950s because the average age was closer to actually 20 than it was to 30. You know, four years later in life, when you get to be 26, 27, four years later, actually does make quite a lot of difference in terms of your energy level. It might make a difference in terms of your financial stability, your career, professional uh, accomplishments and uh, security, but it will also make a difference in terms of how energetic you feel. And it's a trade-off, right? It's it's definitely a trade-off, but the best of your years, you're devoting somewhere, you're investing somewhere. Where are you investing those years? And also more to the point, why and for what? If you're getting together with your friends all the time and that's you know how you uh you know fill your schedule in your off time, okay, that's you know, that's great. But also too, if you're committed to that, if that's a choice, that's not a, you know, hey, I I just haven't found the right person or what have you, if it's a choice because you've prioritized being single, being perpetually about yourself, well, then what's driving that, right? Why do we make that judgment that this is preferable when so many previous generations of our forebears, our ancestors, did not make that choice? Now, you could say, if we're looking from the 1970s forward, that contraceptives have something to do with this, birth control has something to do with this. Rock and roll and drugs and the sexual revolution have something to do with this. The hippie movement has something to do with this. All of those, I think, are in part reasons. But put another way, those are expressions of the same thing. And the same thing that is common to all, the root that is common to all, is a move away from God being the one who tells us what is a value or what we should pursue or what The point of life is, the meaning of life is, what we're here for, how did we get here, where do we come from, where are we going. A move away from looking to God to define uh, our values and a move towards looking within ourselves, looking in the mirror to define what do we want, right? When that question becomes the penultimate, what do we want, life looks very, very different. But when what we want is compared and contrasted with what God says his plans and purposes are for our life, well, then life looks very different. And it might sometimes still look like singleness. I'm not denying that there are good godly uh, circumstances you can be in and be unmarried at 30 plus or not have children at even 40 plus. I'm not denying that God can have a plan for your life that is robust, rich, full, and honorable, unmarried, and without children. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that that's not the reason that so many young people are deciding to not get married and to not have children until later in life. It has to do with a paradigm shift. And there's also this turn of phrase that I was introduced to over the past year. It's this concept called the social imaginary. And what it basically amounts to is a worldview. It's another term for worldview. And, you know, we're not talking Google Earth, where it's like, oh, okay, we have, you know, these satellites that orbit, and uh, we get clearer and clearer pictures of the topography of our planet in a literal sense. No, no, I'm talking your philosophical and theological, more importantly, positions, your ideology, if you will, which is not a dirty word, necessarily, it really has to do uh, you know, whether it's good or bad with whether your ideas are good or bad. Are your ideas bad ideas? Well, then you're going to have a bad ideology if you build your whole worldview, your whole approach to life, your whole social, uh, life, you know, around bad ideas. You're going to have a bad ideology if you have good ideas and you build your life around them. Well, then you're going to have a good ideology. There's nothing wrong with that. But Andrew Garfield here, he comes up, he comes to my attention, uh, actually, not because of his having spoke out uh, (laughs) against the pressure to have kids, (laughs) Uh, you know, a month ago, just about at this point. J.P. Chavez, my brother from another mother, neighbor two houses down, he hit me up yesterday morning. And, uh, at, you, you really did me a solid pointing out that I had a, what I call a taco, uh, you know, if you are typing something out and then you mistype, you fat finger, you misspell a word, you forget some punctuation or autocorrect does its magic with what you were trying to say, you call that a typo, right? When it's a spoken word, I call it a taco. <laughs> it's not nearly as delicious as, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, kinds you eat. Uh, but you do sometimes have to eat them words when you have this kind of taco and, uh, not nearly as delicious, not nearly as filling, but I had a taco in a recent episode where I was talking about some books that I recommended to the wife of a friend of ours, who is also a friend of ours. Don't get me wrong, but I, I'm, I am a friend first and foremost to her husband. My wife is a friend first and foremost to her. (laughs) then thereafter, (laughs) uh, we, we are friends to one another. But she asked me for some book recommendations for her husband for Christmas, and I gave her a list of 14. And then I also shared those 14 titles with you on this podcast. And among the other titles was a certain work by Candace Millard called Destiny of the Republic. And this one, is about a former president of the United States, very, very short service president of the United States because he was shot by an assassin, a would-be assassin. Actually, the would-be assassin, spoiler alert, is not who actually killed him. It was the doctor. It was the arrogant doctor. Think Anthony Fauci-level arrogance and conceit and I am the science and scoffing at anybody else who has another idea This has been done before, but it was done on a much smaller scale, and we apparently didn't learn the lesson. More of us need to read uh, Candace Millard's Destiny of the Republic before we get into uh, our next pandemic, whenever that's scheduled for. But this doctor actually is the one who killed James Garfield, not Andrew Garfield. I said Andrew Garfield. What I meant to say is James Garfield. And uh, as I tell you often, as I tell my family and my children, especially, even my wife, even my wife, I have to say, I am so terrible with names. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of you and then I'm saying Evelyn's name or I'll talk to Daniel and I'll accidentally call him John or I'll be talking to Enoch and I'll accidentally call him Solomon in part because they look alike or they have you know, similarities personality wise, temperament wise. And if I'm in too much of a hurry, I just blurt out the first name that comes to mind with that personality type or something that, you know, is similar. And I did the same thing with Garfield. I, For some reason, Andrew Garfield was on the tip of my tongue, maybe because I have a son named Andrew and maybe because also I, uh, you know, I, I enjoy the Spider-Man movies. I enjoy the extended Marvel Universe movies. Call me a kid. I don't watch them on my own, but I will watch them with my own children, and I do enjoy it when I watch them with my own children. But Andrew Garfield, not the president in question in Candace Millard's Destiny of the Republic, just to be very clear, although it would be fun. There's an idea. If somebody wants to make that into a screenplay and then a movie, let's imagine in the multiverse that uh, Andrew Garfield as Peter Parker, uh, a.k.a. Spider-Man actually was president and his spidey sense tingled on that train station platform and he stopped the would-be shooter. And then also too, he didn't trust himself to an arrogant doctor who didn't believe in germs and uh, hygiene. You know, he, he did his, uh, uh, you know, own doctoring or he found a competent doctor. He knew the difference because he's a scientist and the future of the world and uh, the United States of American uh, history it was never the same, right? So somebody make that into a movie. They've certainly done uh, that kind of a thing with Pride and Prejudice. I think it's Pride and Prejudice and Zombies is uh, a alternate take on Jane Austen's classic. Somebody should do it, maybe with uh, Spider Man and James A. Garfield. And by the way, A does not stand. I thought maybe that would save me. It, a does not stand for Andrew in James A. Garfield former president of the United States, actually, it's Abrams. So my bad. Thank you, JP. And uh, I'm glad we got that cleared up. (laughs) In other news, in other news, speaking of dating and romance and relationships and whatnot, and the uh, state of American masculinity in particular in the year 2022, a screenshot of A little something from Instagram was sent to me yesterday by my friend Jeff Jorgensen up in Savage, Montana. It's a share from Gigi Winters at informed underscore mothers. Dating before 2020, is he masculine? Does he have a good job? Could I see myself marrying him? Dating in 2021, is he unvaccinated? Could I see myself homesteading off grid with him? Is he post-apocalyptic warlord material? <laughs> uh yeah, right. <laughs> Pretty much it sums it up. DC Drano was the one who had reshared this from Gigi Winters. And he says, ladies, is it true? What else is on the must have list? And a couple of comments in reply. Does he use pronouns? And also, does he love Jesus more than he loves himself? Very, very good questions to ask if you are in the market for a potential spouse. Very, very important questions. Also, if you are trying to fit yourself for being a good spouse, these are uh, fair. These are fair (laughs) things to prioritize. Don't take the jab. Don't uh, use the preferred pronouns. Use actual real pronouns that exist that are, you know, legit and accord with reality and uh, do love Jesus, do love Jesus. I don't think you necessarily have to pick either loving Jesus uh, or being post-apocalyptic warlord material. I could be wrong, but there you go. I mean, I you know, if you can thread that needle, if you can walk that tightrope, by all means do. And some lucky lady will think you're pretty hot stuff, no doubt. In other news... This morning, there is a blizzard forecasted for this region, for actually quite a lot of the Rockies, and it's exciting to me. I like the snow. Call me crazy, but I am one of those weird people who enjoys winter weather. In fact, I even enjoy driving in it, enjoy the challenge. I don't necessarily love driving in it when there's a bunch of crazy yahoos who don't know how to drive in it. On the road with me. That's a little bit, you know, disconcerting. But even there, I mean, it adds excitement. And uh, think of it like an obstacle course where you've got to dodge <laughs> these Californians typically, or Texans. Texans are also unaccustomed typically to driving in the snow or on ice. They drive differently. Californians, in my experience, drive too slow and then they are jerky. And uh, Texans, they drive too aggressively in the ice and the snow, and they don't catch on right away, immediately, that they're not going to have that same rolling traction that they would going into a stop, a turn, accelerating, etc., etc. But nevertheless, we'll see how it goes. I might be working from home today. National Weather Service says that Blizzard conditions are expected in eastern Weld County. Winter weather advisory is in effect for Greeley. And hopefully that doesn't disrupt our plans for this evening because actually tonight we've got a special treat not just for our guests who are coming over or expected to plan on coming over, uh, but also for us, we ourselves, we've got some college kids from church who are going to come over and watch the movie Elf with us because Christmas is coming up and smiling's our favorite. And uh, they enjoy hanging out with our kids and us, and we enjoy them. And uh, hopefully, hopefully, the winter weather doesn't make that impossible or impractical or unsafe for them. If so, we'll just call it off and it'll be fine. We'll reschedule. We'll see if maybe Thursday works. Saturday won't work because Saturday is when. My oldest son, Josiah, and I are planning on playing this big epic space opera strategy game with some friends from church. It is Twilight Imperium that we seek, and it's supposed to take all day. It's supposed to be an all-day affair. We've never played it. None of us have. We've been trying to do research on it for the past several weeks. So Saturday won't work if we have to reschedule. Maybe Thursday. We'll see. But in other news... Coming back to this question of the Twitter files, Twitter files, part five, and we won't spend a ton of time on this because I've got other things I want to get to in this episode. We've been talking quite a lot about, everybody's been talking quite a lot about the Twitter files, uh, at least if they are not part of the corporate media, which has reasons Uh, the, the media has reasons for not covering this because. Uh, They were happy about the former status quo. They don't like what's happening right now. They don't know what's going to come of it, except that it might damage their reputations. Uh, Because they didn't cover these things, they had a remarkable lack of curiosity. You see media persons from the corporate media, from MSNBC and CNN, attacking publicly, criticizing, mocking, scoffing at, trying to tear down Matt Taibbi, for instance, one of the journalists who Elon Musk has been giving this uh, information two, which is then being in episodes and in batches released to the public or announced or reported on to the public on Twitter, which is the most appropriate place for it to be shared. We see Matt Taibbi being scoffed at and mocked by establishment media, legacy media uh, journalists, so-called, <clears throat> for basically doing public PR, public relations uh, work pro bono, for Elon Musk. But then on the other hand, he's not doing it pro bono because there's these comments being made that he's going to eat well for the rest of his life because he's a sellout. And it's like, wow, that's, that's irony. You are the pot calling the kettle black, but then I don't even know if you are. I think you're the pot calling (laughs) a sapling or a mighty oak tree. Perhaps would be more correct, more apt for Matt Taibbi and the fortitude intestinal uh, variety. It takes to be a part of the release of this, uh, you know, information to the public, given who the players are, you know, it's the the pot calling the mighty oak tree black. And no, it's the the mighty oak tree is not black here unless you set it on fire, which I think you would, if you could. And you're trying to, even just now, you know, tearing down his reputation, implying that there's a corrupt motive, corrupt, uh, you know, agenda going on here. There's a, You know, a conflict between good journalism and his reporting the story that you don't want him to cover because it hurts the progressive agenda, hurts the leftist agenda, it hurts the corporate media's reputation. Note that Elon Musk is not taking the Twitter files to MSNBC and CNN. And why do you think that is? Because they wouldn't cover it, they wouldn't run with it. They would much rather. Go to each and every single Republican or conservative they can find and put them on the spot in a Mao's cultural revolution kind of way and force them, you know, live for <laughs> this is the whole world to hear and see to denounce Donald Trump, to denounce Elon Musk, to denounce Republicans who are supportive of this thing that is happening right now. But the Twitter files, part five, Yeah, just briefly, we have a Chinese employee at Twitter in the offline, under the hood, behind the scenes, in company, Slack channel discussion, warning coworkers against censoring Trump. Now, this is really, really interesting to see. You have on the one hand, this back and forth conversation, some, not many, but some Twitter employees and executives and, uh, you know, officials in, in some sense, this Twitter business, it was running like it was just an extension of the FBI or an extension of the democratic national convention. You had some people in Twitter saying, I don't know, like, what is the basis within our rules, within our community standards, for censoring the president of the United States or censoring this or that person? You know, have they really violated the rules? And then what you have at the exact same time right away immediately is folks like Yol Roth and Vijaya Gaddy coming back with, well, okay, you know what? Let's just say that it's a violation of this rule because it could be depending on if you interpret what was said as code for something else. And so it's a both end, right? On both ends, you take the most favorable interpretation of the rules that you already have to give you an excuse to do what you wanted to do all along. And you take the least possible favorable, the the, the most unflattering, the ugliest possible interpretation of your political opponents. And you say, well, that's what they meant. And there's no denying it. And, and there's no tag backs either because you've silenced them. So you're not starting a discussion, you're not having a debate, you're not engaging them in public to say, well, hey, what did you mean by that? Can you unpack that a little bit for me? Right? You're just silencing them. And therefore, you get to be right. You always win. You always come out on top with your interpretation. If you take the most flattering uh, and and uh you know, self uh b- permitting, <laughs> I do what I want, like Ron Swanson, to the park ranger. When he's going to slaughter a pig for the barbecue, you know, I do what I want. Do you have a permit for this? Oh, yeah, I do what I want. Here's a piece of paper that I just typed that and printed it off on. You know, you you take the most self permitting interpretation of your own rules and you find, uh, you know, unenumerated consequences within them in the penumbra of your community standards. And then you apply the exact opposite kind of a bias with regards to the people you don't like, like Donald Trump, like James Woods, actor James Woods, unless his name is Andrew Woods. But I don't think it is. I think it is James Woods. So this is really crazy stuff that you've got coming out from Barry Weiss in the fifth batch, because it's not just that internal dialogue. It's not just a formerly uh, Chinese citizen. Twitter employees saying, Hey, you know, I've seen this before. I've, I've heard this song. I've seen this movie. I know how this goes. This really, really damages the public discourse. And this really has a chilling effect on people exercising their free speech, or their First Amendment rights. I know this from experience in communist China, <laughs> right? Basically getting ignored. Basically, like, yeah, whatever, shut up. Well, we'll. We'll censor you too. You're violating the community standards, which are, we do what we want and stay out of our way. But you also have Barry Weiss highlighting tweets from other world leaders who actually literally did call for violence and genocide against you know groups and countries and whole races that they didn't like. Like, for instance, Ayatollah Khomeini calling in 2018. For the eradication of the nation of Israel, like for instance, Doctor Matahir Mohammed. All right, I might be saying that wrong. Mahathir Mohammed saying in 2020, Muslims have a right to be angry and to kill millions of French people for the massacres of the past. Still on, still on uh, Twitter. By the way. This guy, he was formerly the Malaysian prime minister, still on Twitter, even though his tweet was deleted, it was, you can find it, Barry Weiss did, with the Wayback Machine, they did not apply the same kind of, uh, you know, policy approach, interpretation to Donald Trump. Why? Because they hate him. (laughs) Because they don't hate Dr. Matahir uh, Mohammed, and they don't hate... Ayatollah Khomeini, but they do hate Donald Trump. I mean, this, this is wild stuff. Muhammadu Buhari, the president of Nigeria, incited violence against uh, pro-Biafra groups. Quote, those of us in the fields for 30 months who went through the war, he wrote, will treat them in the language they understand. Twitter deleted the tweet, but didn't ban Buhari. And then also, too, she highlights, and I can't read this because it's uh, in a, a different Uh, alphabet even. It's not even in the same alphabet, much less language. But in October 2021, Twitter allowed Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed to call on citizens to take up arms against the Tigray region. Twitter allowed the tweet to remain up and did not ban the Prime Minister. So there's an absolute double standard. There's an absolute double standard because above all things, they hated Trump and also by extension, they hated conservatives who were saying the kinds of things that Trump was saying, who similarly would represent an obstacle to the accomplishment of their political goals. So you have in these Twitter files, and not just the revelation of rampant, widespread arrogance, dishonesty, tyranny, totalitarianism at Twitter, which then also rippled out to other big tech giants, you know, Twitter would do something. And then next thing, you know, you've got Facebook and YouTube doing the same thing or Google doing the same thing or Apple doing the same thing. And this is a back and forth. It's an echo chamber, not just within these social media giants, but then also between these social media giants in Silicon Valley, because they, until Elon Musk purchased Twitter for $40 billion (laughs) Until that, they were all owned and run and operated by leftists who donate to the Democratic Party at like a 99 to one ratio. But you have also in these Twitter files with just them being released, you have good journalism being done and it's driving the left absolutely crazy. They don't want to talk about what was going on at Twitter. They knew they didn't care. They approved of it what they want to talk about is if there's any even small infraction among conservatives or republicans or the people who object to this, hey, let's let that let's make that the story. That's the real story here. Right? In other news, speaking of folks who get in trouble and who maybe don't get in trouble as quickly as they ought to or for the reasons that they ought to. Non-binary Biden official fired after numerous charges related to suitcase thefts at airports. And we won't spend a lot of time on this one either, but this is just a curious thing. The guy literally looks like the Joker. He is literally clowning around. He's wearing women's clothes. He's got his head shaved clean. He's got this creepy mustache, a creepy smile, creepy eyes, super, super creepy guy, absolutely a a villain. This guy's a villain and a pervert. And I don't think he's crazy. I th- I think he's evil, but wearing dark lipstick being celebrated on the left as a hero because he's transgressive. And because they know that this kind of thing, promoting this guy, putting him in a, an official government capacity, parading him around for all of us to have to look at and tolerate You know that that is going to, Incite Republicans and conservatives to say things that will supposedly get them canceled or make them look bad. But again, what was I saying about the after-school Satan Club? The real transgressive, uh, you, you know, position to take in our day is no longer that kids should be allowed to go to an after-school Satan Club. Literally, an after-school Satan Club. That's no longer transgressive. What's transgressive is. If you're not super duper careful about how you say that's wrong, that's self-evidently wrong, well, then you're being a bigot. That's what's transgressive. What's transgressive is not saying this guy looks like the Joker took some bad drugs and got carried away. Even the Joker from Batman got carried away. He looks like that's the look he's going for. And that was his aim. And he just got fired because not once, but several times. He was reported for uh, stealing people's luggage, like strangers, stealing their luggage. And why? We know that he's into, I mean, and, and he is, he's, he is as transgressive as he possibly can get away with in other ways and proudly and publicly flaunting his wickedness, his sexual immorality. I won't even describe what it is that has been. You know, mainstream, out in the open, not like somebody hacked his computer or the Russians leaked some info to the New York Post. Uh, You know, no, I mean, like proudly as as proud as gay can be, he is as proud as gender nonconforming can be. He is. He's not a victim. He's a victimizer. He's he's not the prey. He's the predator. And is that what it's about when he goes and steals other people's luggage because it's a power trip? Because, hey, I just took their stuff and now I get to go through it and I enjoy that. And where does it go from there? Right? Like where did, like, what do we, if that's the stuff we do know about Sam Brenton, that's his name, what do we not know? You know, and and is there a limit? There is no limit. The limit is where we place it. And if we're only concerned with limits on our objecting to these things, well, then there is no limit on folks, even if they go as far as—forget just having an after-school Satan club where you draw pictures of Baphomets. Even if they go as far as human sacrifice in a pagan, satanic, blood magic, death magic uh, ritual, that that won't even be the limit because that's been done before. We're just seeing paganism— From antiquity, come back again and make a resurgence. So it's a good thing he got fired, but he shouldn't have been in the position in our government to begin with. It tells you everything you need to know about what the left stands for and what the Democrats are for. And if Republicans think that they can moderate to this through, let's say, for instance, uh, passing, helping to pass far too many dozens of Republicans helping to pass the Disrespect for Marriage Act. That's what I'm going to call it. Profound Disrespect for Marriage Act. They've got another thing coming. They they destroy themselves. They destroy themselves. Don't affirm it. Don't condone it. Don't acquiesce. Don't go along with it. Don't be a part of it. Also, in other news, Carlos Garcia over at The Blaze has a piece of Jean-Pierre. This is the White House Uh, Press secretary, also uh, a homosexual openly, a black woman and a lesbian, and that's supposed to be enough. I guess that qualifies her. Jean Pierre says Elon Musk calling for prosecution of Dr. Fauci is disgusting and incredibly dangerous. And again, again, I would direct your attention to the fact that on the one hand, what is considered transgressive is objecting to bad behavior, to corruption. On the other hand, nothing, nothing is considered transgressive so long as your maya culpas and your penance and your buying of indulgences takes the form of carbon credits and transing the kids and you know trying to codify abortion and gay marriage. As long as that's what you're for, there's nothing that is transgressive on the left. Just be more and more left. And you'll get away with it, literally anything. Sam Brinton, there, there was no defense. There wasn't something that they had made a, 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 you know, a, a pillar uh, of the Democratic Party platform just yet. Like, hey, we're for the right of uh, non-gender conforming perverts, uh, fetishists to steal other people's luggage. You know, it's It's time for them to not be discriminated against right? They, they hadn't gotten there just yet. And so they had to just, you know, give Republicans that one when Republicans called for his immediate firing. But Jean-Pierre says Elon Musk calling for prosecution of Dr. Fauci is disgusting and incredibly dangerous. Uh, last I checked, we're talking about due process still. Okay. Also last I checked when it is not possible to hold unelected government officials responsible for the death of millions if not tens of millions around the world, because the lockdowns that we encouraged other developing nations to get behind and get along with and go with, uh, starved people to death, led to rampant uh, suicide, substance abuse, domestic violence, crime. In some countries, starvation. You know, If food prices go up here, that also means that food is just flat, not available like it normally would be In countries where food is scarce already, as it is, even in good times. So to say that calling for accountability and the prosecution of Fauci is disgusting and incredibly dangerous. No, no. What's incredibly dangerous is not prosecuting him. Actually, what's incredibly disgusting is not prosecuting him and not prosecuting folks on the left, no matter what they do, so long as they keep on marching you closer and closer to the utopia you want so badly. In a happier story, I came across this BBC reel yesterday, last night, from a year ago. Extinct tree from the time of Jesus rises from the dead in Israel. And the story here is that while some archaeologists were doing work excavating Masada, this ancient Jewish fortress that the Romans took and which so many men and women and children killed themselves rather than be taken by the Romans in. As archaeologists were excavating, they found seeds of ancient plants that had just been put away in a storeroom that was full. I mean, they weren't running out of supplies, but the Romans were about to break through, and so they all killed themselves. One of the seeds was of an otherwise extinct Judean palm tree. And why this was important is, is that Judean date palms were famous in ancient times for not just how delicious they were, but also their nutritional quality and even a medicinal quality. They were also sold as aphrodisiacs, whether they had that power, uh, who knows. Scientists are trying to figure that out and study it. But a couple of scientists here in recent years, uh, actually back in 2005, brought these seeds out of storage and then very, very gently, very, very carefully cultivated them until they had uh, six that successfully sprouted. And they are bringing this extinct Judean date palm back very, very carefully from extinction. And who knows where it'll go? I don't think you can probably uh, go and buy Judean palm dates Anytime soon, but uh, they do look delicious. I would love to try one someday. Hopefully, they're successful in getting these back on their feet again, cultivating them in a big way. Uh, I know it also. Something that was mentioned in the BBC uh, short uh, reel on this was that the Crusaders actually wiped them out or destroyed them all, and I don't find any evidence of that in a brief glancing through the Wikipedia article on the Judean date poem, there is mention of when they uh, went extinct or when they all died out under the Mamluks And there was widespread, uh, wi- widespread uh, devastation in Palestine, in Judea, in what is now the modern nation of Israel. You know, there, there was widespread devastation due to war between Crusader armies and uh, the, the Muslims who, you know, possessed and held the territory, or were trying to retake it, or what have you. But it's a curious thing that the scientists want to immediately say, oh, the Crusaders did it, like it was intentional, like they were trying to, like this was some kind of a like crazy, mad, insane, evil thing, that they're just going around destroying these date palms, and it's a good thing we brought them back. It's like, well, okay, what if the actual story is it's as much the fault of the Mamluks or more as it was the fault of the Crusaders. That's probably the case, I would guess. Uh, more on that maybe in future, as I have a chance to research it more. But from the story of the Judean date palms, let's also talk briefly about the office of Roman censor. So we talk about censorship on this podcast quite a lot. I talk about it quite a lot in private conversation as well. The idea of censorship online of legitimate viewpoints just because, especially the left, doesn't like them, objects to them being articulated. They might be persuasive. They might change people's minds. They might lead to a different political outcome than what the censors want. And so they just shadow ban you. They just make sure you don't trend. They just make sure that people can't search for you on their social media platforms. They just deplatform you, suspend you, et cetera, et cetera. But there is actually a precedent for this, go figure, from Roman times. There actually was an office. There was a title for censor. So the censor, according to Wikipedia, at any time there were two, was a magistrate in ancient Rome who was responsible for maintaining the census. That's one of the reasons why they were called the censor, but also supervising public morality and overseeing certain aspects of the government's finances. The power of the censor was absolute. No magistrate could oppose his decisions and only another censor who succeeded him could cancel those decisions. The censor's regulation of public morality is the origin of the modern meaning of the word censor and censorship. And here's another one. Here's another one I would like to come back to again soon. And I would like to do a fuller episode regarding but just briefly, I'll, I'll mention that this is about morality. It is. If you go back to the origins of the term that we use, this was actually like a straight up office where somebody would be appointed or two would be appointed as censors and their duty was not just to take a census. It was to oversee public morality and it kind of to you know, look at the books, auditing how the government was spending the people's money. Interesting, right? Interesting, given that a common refrain from moderate conservatives and also those on the left is you can't legislate morality. Oh, ho, ho. Yes, you can. In fact, you must. In fact, you are. It's just a question of are you legislating morality? morality, according to what is actually good and what is actually evil. That's the big question. The big question is not, can you? The big question is, can you not? I don't think you can. So when we get into speech, when we get into what people are allowed to do and say publicly, and you say, oh no, that's not acceptable. That's against our community standards. You're talking about censorship. You you are. And just be open about it, that this is your morality. But if you can't make a clear argument for why your morality is legitimately this instead of that, what your principles are, what universal transcendent uh, law you appeal to in support of your verdicts, your decisions, well then, it's entirely fair for the folks who can defend their morality from the standpoint of universal transcendent principles to say, that's wrong, that's wrong what you're doing you're punishing good, and you're rewarding evil. Stop it. Lastly, and I'll give you this preview as well. I hope to do a fuller episode. uh, Maybe tomorrow, we'll see. It would be really great prep work for talking with our youth group tomorrow night about the historical context of the nativity. But Herod the Great, let's talk about Herod the Great briefly. Herod the First uh, is also how he's known. He was a Roman appointed King of Judea serving from circa 72 BC to either four or one BC. I would say one BC, but Herod, the great Roman Jewish client King of Judea referred to as the Herodian kingdom, very much into building, very much into architecture kind of a Donald Trump character of his day. He was always undertaking these public works projects throughout the territory, throughout the country, renovating the second temple in Jerusalem and expanding the Temple Mount towards its north, the enclosure around the Cave of the Patriarchs in Hebron, the construction of the port at Caesarea Maritima, the fortress at Masada and Herodium. Vital details of his life are recorded in the works of the first century Roman Jewish historian Josephus. Herod also appears in the Christian Gospel of Matthew as the ruler of Judea who orders the massacre of the innocents at the time of the birth of Jesus, although most Herod biographers do not believe that this event occurred. Of course, I watched this 45-minute video last night basically about what was going on right around the time that Jesus was born, what was the historical context, and I thought that's what I was going to get mostly, And then instead, it seemed as though the lecturer wanted to go in the direction of, you know, doing a very Will Durant kind of, uh, you know, textual criticism, historical Jesus treatment, where everything about Christianity and then Judaism, uh, also by extension, is if it's good, we say, well, everybody was coming to that conclusion around that time. The Jews got it from these other peoples. Jesus got it from these other peoples. It wasn't an original idea. He just co-opted it successfully until he made an untimely demise. He got a little carried away. He got ahead of himself. He got into some trouble because king of the Jews. Sounds like a political threat to not just Herod, and that's why it's said in the Gospels that Herod sent soldiers to Bethlehem to kill every baby boy two years old and younger. But also, too, this is why it was a threat to the Roman Empire. This is why complaints were brought to Roman officials, not just in the Gospels, but also in the Acts of the Apostles and in the Epistles as we read through the New Testament. Complaints were brought to Roman officials because it was a very political problem as they saw it that we're saying we have another king. His name is Jesus. Our king is Jesus. Caesar is Lord. Eh, Jesus is Lord. I will submit to the governing authorities insofar as you don't ask me to do something God told me to not do. And so far as you don't ask me to not do something that God told me to do, we must obey God rather than men. Intensely, intensely political. But one thing you find, if you try to dig into the history and you just cast a wide net across the internet, you will find again and again, folks who want to take the Will Durant approach to talking about Jesus and Christianity, where everything good, praiseworthy, true, laudable about Jesus himself and about Christianity and about the Bible and about the Old Testament even is giving credit to surrounding peoples who left a bigger mark on history or whose morality, I think this is more to the point, I think this is actually what it is, whose morality is not so constricting to what we actually want to do in our day. So I think what historians have done is they have had a conclusion that Jesus was not really the son of God, that God is just a made-up character we tell our children about to make sure they behave, and that The Bible is not true. This is not the inspired word of God. So even when he comes to a passage in Ecclesiastes, he's reading it. He says, well, Ecclesiastes is said to have been written by Solomon, who is this very wise king and a son of David. But really, it wasn't written by Solomon. It was written by two priests. One was obviously very depressive. The other one was a little more optimistic. And they wrote it. And then they said it was written by Solomon because that's what you just used to do. And we know this how? Oh, never mind that. We know that because some other guy just made it up. And as long as we can point to some other guy who made it up and say he's our source, as long as we cite our sources in the correct MLA or APA format, uh, you know, you, you can't, can't touch this, right? <laughs> you can't argue with us. It's, it's folly. It's nonsense. How could it be that Will Durant, for instance, writing in the early 20th century, knows so much, right? Look at you who knows so much, uh, you know, about what really happened 2000 years ago. But he's, he's just sure that the guys who are actually there when Jesus is, you know, born for instance, or doing his public ministry or when he's arrested and tried and flogged and crucified and dies and is buried and then is resurrected. How does Will Durant know so much? That that was all just borrowed from these other mythologies and these other cultures and their stories. How do you know it didn't work the other direction? That these other cultures, these other religions, these other mythologies weren't borrowing from the Jews or from, more to the point, the truth that the Jews were writing down faithfully. That the Jews who were the prophets, who were the authors, humanly speaking, of scripture wrote down with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, inerrantly, perfectly. How do you know it's not that? Well, you don't. So it's a a position of faith. It's a faith statement or a faithless statement, if you will, where you've decided on the front end that you reject that, you don't believe that, and then you tell the story as if that's the way that it is. Kind of like me accidentally saying Andrew Garfield instead of James Garfield, and then just running with it. Why don't I just run with that? And you know, hey, let's make this into a movie. And actually, let's you know write scholarly papers about how it would have been so great, so much better if Andrew Garfield, aka Spider Man, aka Peter Parker, had been the president right then. You know, and it's nonsense. It's it's nonsense, and that's the point. I'm being intentionally absurd. I am being a smart aleck, And 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 not for no reason. It's for a good cause. I promise. I promise. Uh speaking of speaking of and this will be the last very very last thing and then I got to run. My second oldest son is a delight to me and very funny and very handy. He likes working with his hands. He likes doing construction projects and fixer-upper projects. He's very interested in how things work mechanically. He's very interested in business as well and I think he's going places that are going to involve business and working with his hands and building things and figuring out how they work. And I'm excited about that. He, with some money he made last summer or this past summer, mowing yards, doing yard work for people in the neighborhood. He bought a custom knife from the son of John McNearney of Forged in Fire fame. He bought a custom knife with a custom sheath from Wyatt. Wyatt's his name, Wyatt McNearney, And there was something with the sheath that, you know, needed to be corrected and they got to talking about it, Eli and Wyatt and Wyatt says, why don't I just make you a new sheath? I'll just make you a new sheath. And so Eli just got his knife back because Wyatt had to take the knife so that he made sure that the sheath was the right size and everything and it would fit and all that. And he got the knife and the sheath back on Sunday and I hope I'm not going to get in trouble or get anybody else in trouble for saying this, but I'm I'm terribly amused. I think it's very, very funny. On the new sheath are, in Hebrew, the words smartass. (laughs) I think it's very funny. I I think that's very funny. Uh, You wouldn't know it just glancing at it because it's Hebrew. And it's like, oh, well, that's that's very, very important, very... Proper? What what does that say in Hebrew? You know, it's like the, the guys in the 90s who liked to get tattoos with Japanese lettering and they had no idea what was being said in Japanese. And for that matter, you know, it was probably very often, uh, you know, a joke on them for the tattoo artist. If the tattoo artist did know the Japanese, <laughs> it was like, this is Japanese for you're an idiot. <laughs> But in this case, my, my son, actually, he he requested it. He says, well, can you put uh, smart ass in Hebrew on there? Because he is. He's a, he's a sarcastic guy. He's a smart aleck. And uh, actually, you know, we were talking about this on the way home from church as we were discussing this sheath. And it occurred to me that to just ask out loud, what, what is an aleck? You know, smart aleck. What is an aleck? And my wife looked it up very helpfully because I was driving. And that's not safe. Don't look up the definition of words while you're driving, especially with the whole family on the way home from church. She looked it up and Alec actually means idiot or a dumb person, somebody who's stupid. So then to be a smart Alec is you're a smart, dumb person, which is to say you're being absurd, right? And, and you know that everybody who's smart Alec and who does it well, they they know that they're being absurd. We all know that they're being absurd. And why are they being absurd? Well, they're being absurd to make a point. And the point is typically that actually this thing over here that we're taking so seriously is not true, or it's not, you know, to be taken as seriously as we might be taking it. And it would be more beneficial if we didn't take it quite so seriously. So there you go. Uh, You know, I I think it's great. Some people might frown on that. They might be like, oh, you know, know, horrified. Uh, Me, not so much. I'm not, (laughs) I'm not so concerned. In fact, I think it's very funny. Unfortunately, that's all the time I've got for this episode. I really do have to run. I got to go. I got to get to work. We'll see how things go with this blizzard that's outside. But if you're out in it, drive safely. If you're out after it's over, but the roads are still a mess, continue to drive safely. Uh, Don't go too fast into turns or into stops or when you're taking off. If you start to find that one side or the other of your vehicle is... Coming out, you're you know fish tailing, take your foot off the gas immediately and don't slam on the brakes. It's good to tap them if you want to get your front end to behave a little bit or snap back into place and grab traction, grab road. You tap your brakes just briefly, and if you want your back end to regain rolling traction. Actually, just a very brief tap on the gas pedal can be really helpful there as well. But what you don't want to do is you don't want to be overcorrecting and you don't want to be taking things too fast. When the roads are slick, take it easy, right? Take it easy. But that's all I've got. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.